This is the sort of the spirit part two, and we're going to, I'm going to read Ephesians 6.17, and we're continuing from where we left off. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And continuing from earlier, for the word to be a powerful defense, <coughs> we must believe, receive, and respect all of God's commandments, even the ones we may not want to obey. This is leftover application from this morning. A true Christian does not come to the moral law as one comes to a smorgasbord, picking and choosing what to obey. <clears throat> a sincere real repentance is an entire turning away from sin, even our most dear and besetting sinful habits. And you never give up. You may struggle, but you don't give up. This can only be done if we view sin as God does. An obedient, covenantally faithful Christian judges all his thoughts and actions by the right, transcendent, unchanging rule of God. The Lord's sword, <clears throat> sacred word, lights his path, directs his feet. He hates sin. He hates false worldviews and a rebellion against the Lord Jesus. He hates everything that offends his precious Savior. He understands that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And this is 1 John, 4, oh, James 4.4. 4. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If we love Christ, we will love his law. Hate evil and depart from it. Although loving Yahweh and hating evil will make Christians the objects of malice, hatred, and persecution, <clears throat> we must fear God who will cast both the bodies and souls of the wicked into hell. Matthew 10.28 And will deliver his church from out of the hands of the wicked. Psalm 97.10b and then we come to our next major point, which we're going to spend a great deal of time on. A very important topic, the importance of a proper interpretation of Scripture. A lot of Christians don't know this stuff. It's very important, and I've never taught on it before that I'm aware of, uh, at least not in the last 20 years. So let's uh, look at it. <clears throat> One cannot discuss the importance of learning and applying the Bible to our lives without noting the central, critical importance of properly interpreting and understanding the scriptures. The Bible, as our defense and offense, must be properly interpreted, appropriated and understood correctly by our minds if it is to do us any good. In fact, if it is to be interpreted in a false or heretical manner, if it is interpreted in a false or heretical manner, one is left with something exceptionally dangerous and harmful. A good soldier or policeman with a sword brings peace and order. But a madman or an evil criminal with a sword does great harm. Damnable heretics who have imposed their own false ideas upon the Bible have slain millions and brought multitudes down to the pit of hell. Think of Roman Catholicism. With all this in mind, there are a number of things to consider. First, one cannot properly interpret and apply the word of God without an interior work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> After noting that scripture is the church's sole authority for faith and life, either explicitly or by good and necessary consequence or logical deduction, the Westminster Confession says, this is one six. nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word. Jesus says that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 3. You can't perceive it. You can't see it. You can't understand it. Paul says, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 2.12-15a. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, in order that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words in which man's wisdom teach teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. <clears throat> but the natural man, that is the unregenerate man, the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Now the Holy Spirit dwells in every single Christian and enlightens their eyes to understand what Scripture 
means. The Spirit also awakens, cleanses, renovates, and draws believers so they have faith <coughs> and obey what the Bible says. The Word is a dead letter without the Spirit's operation in us. The Bible declares Christ and his work and gives us a standard of sanctification. The Spirit makes the Word powerful, transforming, and efficacious. <clears throat> the Bible sets forth the way, and the Spirit enables to, us to walk in that way. Now note here how John, the Apostle John, differentiates between true Christians and apostates. This is first John, excuse me, first John 19a and 20. <coughs> they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But you, that is the true Christians, true, believer, true believers, have an anointing of the Holy One, and you know all things. The heretics who left the church denied that Jesus had come in the flesh, the Incarnation. That's the context of John there. But true Christians believe the truth and remain because they possess the Holy Spirit who applied the Scripture, the truth of Scripture, to their hearts. Charisma in the, in the pre, uh, is in the present tense indicating a continuing blessing conferred. We are dependent on the Spirit's work every day of our whole life. <clears throat> That's why we should always pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes. Teach us what the Scripture says. And we see that throughout the Psalms. Second, this is crucial stuff, very simple. Scripture must be interpreted in the sense intended by the original author. The text under consideration has a particular meaning that is fixed and unchanging. Whatever our culture, society, secular intellectuals, supposed scientists, trendsetters, or philosophers advocate is irrelevant and does not affect the meaning of the original author's one iota. <clears throat> Our interpretation must be controlled by the meaning of the words. This can be determined by how that word is used in other portions of Scripture, especially within the broad and narrow context. The grammar of the language must also be carefully examined. Verb tenses, prepositional phrases, emphatic word order, etc. <clears throat> One must seek to understand as closely as possible how the original audience would interpret terms, concepts, phrases, etc. Remember this. A text of scripture can only mean what it meant to the original audience. It can never mean something different than what the original author intended. Applications to our modern situation may be unique. They didn't have cars. They didn't have the internet. But the meaning of the text is fixed by author intent and the original audience normal historical understanding. Areas of life between us and the first century, that are the same, marriage, family, ethics, worship, doctrine, etc., are actually quite comprehensive. Consequently, <coughs> doctrinal teachings and ethical imperatives apply to us in the same manner as the original audience. We cannot and must not allow modern, secular, or heretical concepts of salvation or ethics to influence our interpretation at all. That's what's happening in this homosexual stuff. Well, they looked at homosexuality that way because of their culture. No, it meant what it meant, exactly what it meant. For example, the fact that virtually all of Western societies have accepted homosexuality as perfectly normal and moral is irrelevant to how we should interpret the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. In addition, our interpretation of any text is related to Orthodox Christian theology in the sense that the overall meaning and purpose of the whole Bible must be a factor when examining any single text of Scripture. <clears throat> the Protestants who reformed the Church away from the corruptions and heresies of Rome understood that interpretation must be historical, grammatical, and theological. <clears throat> The
Their very words and ideas of inspired writers must be viewed exactly as the original authors intended. <clears throat> Post-Kantian relativism or postmodern theories of meaning and hermeneutics must be emphatically rejected as worthless, harmful, and wrong. This idea that words don't really have meaning and they, that you can make them mean whatever you want them to mean. There is no meaning. That's just absurd. There, there is no communication then. Why would you care if I didn't use your proper pronouns, if pronouns don't really have meaning? Further, personal opinions, subjective feelings, or extra-biblical presuppositions have nothing to do with biblical interpretation. Meaning, presuppositions and methods must be derived from the overall text of Scripture itself. <clears throat> For Christian existentialists, and neo-Orthodox theologians, Soren Kierkegaard, Martin Koller, Emil Bruner, Thomas Torrance. The person reading or obeying script, studying scripture adds a personal dimension to the word. This is very popular back in the 40s and 1940s and 50s. Only then, we are told, does it become the word. Supposedly, man's subjective response determines to an extent the nature and meaning of scripture. With such a view, scripture loses all objective meaning and real authority if we contribute something to it subjectively. You see how absurd that is. It is not objective truth unless man adds a subjective response to it, we're told. The practical effect of such absurd teaching is that the Bible does not determine what our culture and law order must be, but rather is made to reflect our apostate, unbelieving culture. In the 1950s and 40s and 50s, neo-orthodoxy was considered a great improvement over modernism because they said the Bible was the Word of God or became the Word of God or contained the Word of God. But in reality, they deny the Bible's infallibility and authority, just as much as the modernist does. Read Van Til's book on Karl Barth. And, and we find this kind of thinking among evangelicals. Or just, they just don't think about things. Well, that's what, that, that's what that passage means to you. But it means to me this, something very different. And that may be legitimate for you, but my thinking is legitimate for me. No, 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 no. It has an objective meaning that's the same for you and for me. And we need to find out what that objective meaning is through historical grammatical exegesis or interpretation of Scripture. Third, Scripture must be used to interpret Scripture. Those portions of the Bible that are less clear, more difficult, or obscure must be interpreted in the light of the many clear passages of Scripture that speak directly or indirectly, logical inference, to the particular issue under consideration. The Westminster Confession of Faith notes this principle. This is one nine. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and made known by other places that speak more clearly. And, uh, many years ago, J. Adams wrote a really good book on preaching, and he talks about interpretation in there. It's really quite good. You need to understand the whole Bible to interpret any one passage properly. You need to understand the book it's in, and you need to understand the broad context and the immediate context. Colts and Daminal heretics take a false view of a more difficult passage, and they use it to twist, distort, pervert, and thus deny the many clear portions of Scripture. Their procedure is the opposite of standard, sensible, valid Protestant hermeneutics. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians and so forth. Pat, Jesus said, uh, not even the Son knows this, only the Father. And he's talking about his human nature. And they take that and they say, well, see, he's obviously not divine, even though there's hundreds of passages, you know, like dozens and dozens and dozens of passages which explicitly teach that Jesus is God. Here's another example. The, uh, the full preterist. They take some fairly obscure teaching about time indicators, and then they use it to overturn uh, the fact that death came by sin, physical death, not just spiritual death. They use it to overturn 
a literal bodily resurrection, they, which is very clearly taught in Scripture. They use it to overturn uh, the literal bodily resurrection. Uh, Second coming of Christ, which is explicitly taught in Scripture. They use it to overturn the meaning of the rapture of the church that occurs the moment Jesus returns. So they take a very obscure thing, and then they use it to overturn dozens of explicit, clear passages. The many heresies and branches of Christianity that exist are due to the fact that men are finite and sinful. They are not always ready and willing to receive and submit to certain doctrines and requirements. The Bible is sufficiently clear in its teachings that a simple Christian can believe it, understand it, and live by it. <clears throat> People are, well, if the Bible's so clear, the perspicuity of Scripture, if the Bible's so clear, why are there so many, you know, there's 250 denominations out there? Because men are sinners and men don't like to submit to Scripture. Fourth, the text of Scripture under consideration must be interpreted according to the type of inspired literature one is examining. There is history, <clears throat> epistles, prophecy, songs, gospels, parables, etc. In other words, history must be interpreted as history. Poetry is poetry. Didactic epistles as didactic epistles. One must make a distinction between that which is meant to be taken literally or the plain sense, and that which is poetic and designed to be interpreted symbolically or metaphorically. When a poetic psalm speaks of God having nostrils or arms, it is obviously symbolic. When the book of Revelation speaks about a beast with many heads, it is a symbol of something. It's not literal. Cults have formed, for example, Mormonism, on the basis of refusing to recognize this obvious and necessary interpretive procedure. They go to the book of Psalms where it talks about God, the arm of the Lord, and all this kind of stuff, and they see God has a body, just like you and me. Which, of course, contradicts dozens and dozens of passages. When an author uses allegory or highly symbolic language, such uses are plainly indicated by the writer himself and context. When looking at such passages, one must carefully search the scripture to determine what the allegory or symbolic language signifies. The meaning is still objective, not subjective. That which is typical in the Old Testament is regarded as typical in the New Testament and is properly explained in the New Testament. Anything, person, or event in the Old Testament that was designed to prefigure something under the New Covenant can only be identified and made known and explained to us by the New Covenant revelation. Those Christian authors who go beyond what special revelation identifies as types, for example, James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, and their interpretive maximalism, or Professor Warren Gage, he's at a seminary in Florida, or at least he used to be, this so-called typological patterning, are really engaging in subjective speculations. If one goes beyond what can be proved through traditional Protestant hermeneutics by Scripture, then one it goes beyond the intent and the meaning of the passage. Resemblance and vague patterns must not be confused with types that have clear antitypes. Clever men come with, up with all sorts of fanciful and in, uh, in, inventive interpretations that may be interesting but really do not come from the text of Scripture and are basically worthless. James Jordan is a great example. I used to get his newsletter years ago, and I've had, I have a couple of his commentaries. Now, he's a bright guy, and he says some good things, but he says a lot of just absurd nonsense. It has really nothing to do with the original author's intent. People are drawn to such views because they sound very clever and intellectual, but they do a great disservice to Scripture and biblical exegesis by going beyond the intent of the author. If the plain teaching of Scripture is not the controlling factor of exegetical procedure and interpretation, then churchmen will descend into one's clever fantasy, one's clever fantasies against another clever fan fantasies. And I'll look at this more in a moment. Even if the conclusions are true theologically, one must still artificially force such teachings out of a passage that are not really there. The Bible must be treated, not be treated as a fairy tale or mystic puzzle. The purposeuity of Scripture taught within Reformed symbols rejects such nonsense. And now, we acknowledge some things are less clear than others, but this thing, finding hidden meanings all over the place is, is terrible procedure. Fifth, 
Biblical interpretation rejects the idea that behind the one natural meaning of words, the grammatical historical sense of a passage, lies hidden, deeper, spiritual, allegorical, or mystical meanings. And this is really popular today because of James Jordan. The Protestant reformers emphatically rejected the Roman Catholic Church's concept of interpreting of interpretation which Romanists inherited from some of the early church fathers, for example, Origen. And this view became standard during the Middle Ages and remains the Roman Catholic view to this very day. The 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quote, According to ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses. He's talking about scripture. The literal and the spiritual. The latter being divided into the allegorical, moral, and analogical senses. End of quote. <clears throat> The Reformers held to one sense, the historical grammatical sense, and rejected the others as speculations that could not be controlled or proved by Scripture. They insisted that the Bible had one sense and must be interpreted in the same manner as other books, with, of course, the knowledge that Scripture was inspired, infallible, and could not contradict itself. The Reformers' view is reflected in the Westminster Standards, which says the true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold, but one. You got guys like James Jordan and Peter Lightheart, and they'll go to a passage and you know, they have all these weird mystical meanings that they find in it. Here's what Bernard Ram writes. This is a, from 1970. This is an old book on hermeneutics. Associating certain words with such things as nouns, verbs, adjectives, etc. is called designation. Every language represents a certain system of de designation. Language also reflects several levels of designation. Ordinary conversation reflects popular, ordinary, common-sense designation. A learned lecture on physics represents a technical designation. A poem represents metaphorical designation. The word literal in the theory of hermeneutics implies an understanding of this process of designation. It takes as the primary range of designation, the customary, the usual, the, social, the socially acknowledged designations. Thus, the literal meaning of a word is its designation in the common stock of the language. The older books on hermeneutics use the expression usus loquendi. This means that the meaning of a word is determined by how that word was used in ordinary conversation. Designation is a better modern semantical term to use in developing a theory of interpretation rather than usus loquendi. When we assert that the literal meaning of a word or sentence is the basic, customary, or socially designated meaning, we do not underestimate the complexity of language. In asserting that hermeneutics must start with the literal meaning of words, this assertion is made in the light of the complexity of language. To interpret scripture literally is not to be committed to a wooden literal interpretation or to letterism, nor to a neglect of the nuances that defy any mechanical understanding of language. Rather, it is to commit oneself to a starting point and that starting point is to understand a document the best one can in the context of the normal, usual, customary, traditional range of designation, which includes facet understanding. End of quote. Because some of these things James Orden and people come up with, there's no way in the world that the original author could have been thinking that. A passage can have many applications but only one sense. <clears throat> it cannot mean different things at the same time. The original idea of a spiritual deeper hidden meaning by some of the church fathers was not developed out of the Bible, but was rooted in ancient Platonic thought. The seeking of hidden higher meanings, that is the allegorical interpretation, involved a fantastic, highly creative use of one's imagination. In our day, the shift away from traditional Protestant interpretation comes from the interpretive maximalist, maximalism school of thought developed in the 1980s by James Jordan, who back then was a theonomist. Jordan has many advocates and followers, Peter Lightheart, Doug Wilson, David Chilton, most of the Federal Vision advocates follow this procedure. For example, Mark Horn, Richard Lusk. They argue that standard Protestant interpretive techniques are minimalistic and do not search for the literal, uh, literary architecture of God's revelation. This is David Shilton. Or why a word or phrase is used, is used, quote, repeated several times. 
David Chilton says, and so does others in this school, that the Bible is, it's a fairy tale, but it's a true fairy tale. <laughs> that, quote, everything in Scripture is symbolic. Everything. Now, he admits that this view was the same when used by the Church Fathers. They're returning to the Church Fathers, which Calvin and Luther and the Reformers all rejected. They rejected that as worthless. Let's get to the one meaning, the meaning intended by the author. His example of the superior hermeneutic is James Jordan's treatment of the woman who threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull, from Genesis 9.53. The crushing of the tyrant's head, the use of a stone, and a millstone tells us that all of this is sim symbolically speaking about Christ. Now this is all very interesting, and Jordan is not advocating something heretical here. But was this maximalistic view in the mind of the author? From the book of Judges itself, one can easily ascertain that God judged Abimelech for his wickedness in a most humiliating manner. He died at the hands of a woman, not a warrior, and he died not by a sword in battle, but by a millstone, both of which are a greater judgment and are shameful. Now, Jordan's interpretation could be called a kind of application, but the idea that the author had all this creative analysis in mind is absurd. He arbitrarily, look, arbitrarily looks for similarities and things that correspond, but ignores crucial differences. Daniel 2.35, what is Christ called? Yes, he's called a stone, but he's called a stone cut out without hands. What is a millstone? A millstone is cut, cut out and shaped by human hands. So, that doesn't work very well, does it? The serpent's head is crushed by the woman's seed, not by the woman. Genesis 3.16 The stone cut without hands does not strike Satan, but the image representing the world's kingdoms. Daniel 2.34 The use of one's imagination is very fun, it's very interesting, but the conclusions of this procedure are largely subjective and arbitrary. Like I said, as long as they agree with what Scripture teaches, they're not that harmful. But let's not confuse this with proper biblical exegesis. It's not. It's fantasy. Just hopefully their fantasies are biblical. When such procedures are done by Orthodox ministers, they general produce, generally produce Orthodox conclusions. But such procedures are not biblical, sound, or confessional. Moreover, they are easily abused by false, uh, to advocate false doctrines and practices. The church fathers often use allegorical methods to find Christian teaching in the Old Testament. They also found some Neoplatonism. You read some of the church fathers, they spoke of Plato as a secret Christian. <laughs> Romanists use allegorical interpretations to justify sacramentalism. The papacy and their prelatical system of government was also justified by such procedures. The only safe and sound method for obtaining the meaning of Scripture is to focus our attention on what the words literally or actually mean, unless, of course, one is dealing with poetry or metaphor, where the literal signifies something um, else, which is determined by the context. For example, Revelation. The standard confessional Protestant interpretation of interpretation gives us the biblical, necessary controls for an effective, meaningful, sound, correct, provable interpretation of Scripture. It is our responsibility as Christians to uphold and guard the attainments of the Reformation, even in hermeneutics. Jordan, Horn, Lusk, Wilson, Gage, these people have all departed from the Protestant thing and returned back to the Church Fathers. And they think they're superior, and they're wrong. It is probably not accidental that the advocates of interpretive maxillism tend to be advocates of sacramentalism, a rejection of the regular principle of worship for a shift to Roman Canterbury, and the adoption of the federal vision or shepherdism, which is a heresy that denies justification by faith alone. I find that very interesting and very revealing. And I've read a bunch of this stuff. Like I said, I used to read Jordan stuff for years. And it's like he plays a game with scripture. It's very entertaining. It's very interesting. Sometimes he says things that are quite good, but they're at best, applications, they, they really are not being taught in the text. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> now let's look at interpretation in Sola Scriptura. 
And we'll end with this today. As one looks at the biblical of uh, the issue of biblical interpretation, it is wise to examine the issue of church tradition as it relates to sola scriptura, that is the great Protestant doctrine that the Bible alone is our standard for faith and life. The teaching of sola scriptura was used by the Protestant reformers to overturn the Romanist errors that the church had two ultimate authorities, special revelation and the unwritten traditions the tradition set forth by the church, which they call the unwritten traditions. The Roman Catholic position is set forth in the Council of Trent, 4th session, 1546, the Second Vatican Council, De Verbum, 8, 1962-65, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994, page 31. The basic Romanist position is that the authors were receiving divine revelation through inspiration and writing the New Testament canon, they were also receiving revelations from God that were not written down, that were passed on through the ages by the church hierarchy, through word of mouth. They actually teach this. Consequently, as the church made up some new doctrine or practice in history, they would claim that the church authorities were simply progressively revealing something revealed back in the first century. That's what they actually teach. The traditions of the church are said to be co-equal with written revelation, but the reality is that they are placed above Scripture. For, number one, they contradict the teaching of the Bible, this idea that Mary was sinless and she ascended to the Father, that's clearly not taught in Scripture. And two, they are used in his authority over the word to judge and interpret it. Besides the fact that there is zero evidence in the Bible for the Romanist position, the Roman Catholic position is disproved by the following biblical and historical considerations. Number one, the Bible, as we've seen this morning, teaches its own perfection, completeness, and sufficiency, rendering a separate human source of authority unnecessary. Two, Scripture explicitly forbids adding or detracting from the completed canon. Don't add to it, don't detract from it. God can add to it if he wants to, but once canon is closed, there is no adding to it. Three, the Roman Catholic editions contradict Scripture and have brought ecclesiastical tyranny, corruptions, apostasy, rank idolatry, damnable heresies, and the persecution of God's true people. If you got caught back in the old days with a Bible, you'd be put to death, you'd be burned at the stake. And the early, the early guys who made, gave us the first New Testament had to hide it. They had to smuggle it in like cocaine or something. And if they got caught, they'd be killed. Four, the Romanist traditions are full of self-contradictions and obvious errors, demonstrating that they are not the product of the Holy Spirit, but finite sinful men. Councils contradict each other councils. Popes contradict other popes. Five, Genuine faith must have as its object Jesus Christ, God, and its infallible word. The Romanist position requires an implicit faith in the church as the final authority which places the church in the place of God, which is idolatry. A lot of Reformed people think this way. The church said so. Well, what did the Bible say? The Reformed Protestant position is that the Bible is not, a, not one rule among many, or simply the best rule, but the only rule of faith and practice. First Helvetic Confession, Article 1, Belgian Confession, Article 7, Second Helvetic 1, 2, Westminster Shorter Catechism, Answer to Question 2, Larger Catechism, Answer to 3, Confession of Faith 1, 6, French Confession, Article 5. The Protestant Episcopal or Anglican Church departed from this principle in the areas of church government and ecclesiastical ceremonies by giving the church authority to make up its own ceremonies and rites, Article 20 and 34. The Lutheran position was better than the Anglicans, but they placed human autonomy in worship by arbitrarily labeling their human additions and traditions adiaphora, or things in difference. See the formula of Concord on adiaphora, and see Luther's The Pagan Servitude of the Church. The vast majority of Reformed and Presbyterian churches today have more in common with the Lutheran position than the one taught in the Reformed symbols. They say they hold to the regular principle, but when they want to add something, they just say it's adiaphora. The Roman Catholic view, as well as the Eastern Orthodox communions, gives the church authority over scripture and human autonomy and doctrine, government, worship, and ethics. The Reformers correctly regarded the papal church as apostate and the pope as an antichrist. And they were correct. And it is still just as wicked today as it was then. Yeah, they're not committing as many murders and killing Christians and so forth, but their, their doctrine is just as wicked. Now, having noted the Reformed Romanist position, there's another error that we must avoid, which is the position that in the area of interpretation, one must ignore the church's role in history altogether 
and come to the scriptures as if they'd never been studied or interpreted before. That's the original Anabaptist view. The Bible teaches that the churches possess the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19, and God has placed pastors and elders in the church to deal with discipline, ethical issues, and settle issues of doctrine. Get rid of heresy. Paul even refers to the church as a pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15c. The word foundation, Greek, adraoma, from hedraa, steadfast, firm, translated ground, foundation, support, bulwark, refers to something that upholds or supports the structure above it. As a pillar upholds a roof and a foundation supports the building, the church has a responsibility to uphold, support, and defend biblical Christianity. The passage is not saying the church gave us the Bible or creates the Bible in the sense of having authority over the Bible, but in the sense of defending the Bible. The church is responsible to hear, believe, and obey the truth, Matthew 13, 9. Handle it or interpret it correctly, 2 Timothy 2.15, teach or preach it to the world, Matthew 28.18-20, and defend it from error and heretics, 1 Timothy 1.3 and 18, 2 Timothy 1.13 and 2.2 and 25, 3.10 and following, 4.1-5, Titus 2.1.15 and 3.10. The Word and the Spirit creates the church, and the church must act as a guardian to protect the sacred treasure from the glory of, uh, for the glory of God and the salvation of mankind. If the church corrupts and then loses hold of the truth, she ceases to be the household of faith and becomes the synagogue of Satan. With this teaching in mind, everyone should seek membership in a solid, reformed, Bible-believing church that does, that does preach and defend the truth. Not some Arminian church, that's for sure, and certainly not a Roman Catholic church. Now, having noted the church's responsibility as those who possess the oracles of God and the inspired system of doctrine received from Christ, the apostles, and the prophets, to protect the truth, we can now understand the reason behind the early ecumenical councils of the church and the need throughout church history to produce catechisms, confessions of faith, and detailed statements of doctrine called subordinate standards to refute heretics and protect believers from dangerous false interpretation of the scriptures. As the church has encountered heresies regarding Christ, the Trinity, salvation, and other crucial doctrines, she has sharpened her teaching as she has faithfully defended the truth. To ignore all these hard-fought achievements and come to Scripture as if there was no testimony from the church on these matters would be incredibly foolish and even dangerous spiritually. This is a difficult issue. For church councils can produce errors, and the history of the Christian church is a history of declension, apostasy, revival, and then more declension. It's, it's a very sad history, and it's because men are sinners. For this reason, there are a number of things to keep in mind as we focus our attention on the importance of learning from and standing on the shoulders of Orthodox Christians and churches that have preceded us. Number one, doctrinal statements produced by international councils, general assemblies, or synods are called subordinate standards for a reason. The scriptures are the sole standard for faith and life. And the official statements of councils and assemblies are only authoritative as organized summaries of what the Bible teaches. The subordinate standards are authoritative only if and when they agree with Scripture. Isaiah 8, 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And here's Confession of Faith 1.8. The scriptures being immediately inspired by God and by a single care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. The Bible has the final say on everything, whether doctrine or ethics. Confession of Faith 1.10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men and private spirits are, be, are to be examined and, whose, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures, Confession of Faith 1.10. When the Pharisees challenged Jesus on doctrine, what did he say to them? Matthew 22.29. You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. He debated using Scripture. Okay, these statements do not receive their binding authority from the church. 
That's a very mistaken view. That's a Roman Catholic view but from God who speaks to us in Scripture. If they add to what the Bible teaches or contradicts it, those ideas are not binding. In fact, it would be sinful, immoral, and dangerous spiritually to submit to unbiblical ideas or practices. Number two, and this is critical, a lot of Presbyterians don't think this way anymore, the church's job is purely ministerial and declarative, not creative. Our job is simply to relate what Scripture teaches and make it clear and apply it. We don't create anything. The church's job is to teach what the Bible teaches and practice what the Bible authorizes without addition or subtraction. It holds no authority to make up or create doctrine, ethics, or worship practices, etc. When a church adds or detracts from what the Bible teaches, it can and must be disobeyed. If they add something to worship that's not authorized by Scripture, don't do it. If your church has a Christmas service, which is clearly not authorized and obviously comes from paganism, don't participate in it. If you do, you're sinning. <clears throat> when the Jewish authorities commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel because they believed in salvation by works, and they were the religious authorities in Israel, Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You're not obligated to do something because the church says so. You're obligated to do something because the scripture says so. And if the church contradicts the scriptures, you respectfully disagree and don't do it. Now, if it's something completely heretical, like denying justification by faith of the Trinity, then you rebuke them and you get away from them as far as possible. Number three, for these reasons, the statements of the church councils and confessions of churches must be tested and proved by Scripture. They are not intended to replace Scripture, but to serve as ministerial aids to Scripture. When faithful, they are the accumulated wisdom and sound exegesis of faithful ministers and elders over the centuries. When they agree with Scripture, they have the full authority of God and His Holy Word behind them. Same with preaching. When somebody preaches and they preach, their preaching agrees totally with what Scripture says, you have to submit to that as if God was speaking to you Himself. It is wrong to disregard them and treat them as merely the opinions of churchmen. And this attitude is especially true of the first six, first six ecumenical councils, which are excellent, and the Reformed symbols, the Westminster Standards, the First and Second Helvetic Confessions, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, which are thoroughly biblical and landmark achievements of the Church. Now, I know that the Helvetic has something there about Holy Days, which we reject, and the Presbyterians wrote to them and congratulated them on an excellent statement of doctrine, but pointed out, you're unbiblical here. Holy days come from the Roman Catholic Church, the ones added to the scriptures that are not authorized by scripture, the church calendar. That comes from Romanism. That has nothing to do with the Bible. And the Presbyterians pointed that out when they congratulated them on the Second Helvetic. Faithful churches are guided by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to depart from their written testimony without clear and abundant proofs is the height of arrogance and folly. Historically, it has been heretics and doctrinal deviants who have called into question the legitimacy and importance of creeds or confessions. Biblical church standards serve as a fence to keep the theological wolves out. Arminians, cults, full preterists, antinomians, the federal visionists, the worship corruptors, and the orthodox sheep in. They are never intended to replace the Bible or end exegetical expository preaching. But in a fallen world full of sin, depravity, Satanism, and heresy, they are necessary as Orthodox Christian doctrinal and practical boundaries. As Thomas Manton says about the Westminster Standards, <coughs> quote, The advantages you see in this design are many and great. The way to spiritual knowledge is hereby made more easy, and the ignorance of this age more inexcusable. They're helpful. They're useful. And the reason they arose in history was to fight heresies. They denied the divinity of Christ. They had to come up with something. They denied the Trinity. They had to come up with something to refute it, to protect the sheep. And those statements on the Trinity that were done way back, 4th century, are still the best things written on that. They haven't really been improved upon since. Now, having noted the great importance of creeds in church history, let us consider a few errors regarding them, and we'll end. Number one, 
The creeds are there to help the church in discipline, training, doctrinal controversies, corporate sanctification, and maintaining the church's testimony or doctrinal attainments. They, however, must not be used to replace the need for solid historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture and the ability to defend every doctrine from Scripture. You run into these people. Well, Westminster Standard says this, or Calvin said that. And somebody might say, well, that's great, but can you defend it from Scripture? And you sh- you got to do both. Yes, you can appeal to a subordinate standard. That's no, I have no problem with that at all. But you have to be able to defend it from Scripture. Whenever Jesus got into debates with people, he used Scripture. They are subordinate standards and must not overshadow a solid knowledge of and personal ability to interpret Scripture. When people quote the standards, it refused to back them up with biblical arguments using an interpretation of particular uh, proof texts. They are not using the standards as intended. The standards were never intended to replace the exegesis of Scripture. The early Presbyterians and Puritans were masters of the English Bible. They're not, they didn't have strong concordance. Their knowledge of Scripture was mind-boggling. And they were perhaps the best expositors of Scripture since Paul. The reason the Reformed symbols are so excellent and relevant is because their authors were saturated with Scripture. Number two, one must avoid the modern evangelical attitude which has no respect or use for detailed subordinate standards or creeds whatsoever. This view is largely a product of Enlightenment rationalism, American individualism, democratic populism, and our nation's love affair with religious pluralism. It is supremely arrogant, and it refuses to recognize the corporate sanctification and attainments of the church over time. I remember when I was in seminary, our professor told us there was a group of people in Canada, a group of churches in Canada, which says, we're getting rid of all creeds and confessions, and we're just going to use the scriptures. And they went through every doctrinal heresy that had already been dealt with because they weren't looking at the creeds and confessions. They weren't building on, they weren't standing on the shoulders of those who went before them, and then they went through all the same heresies. God has always retained a faithful remnant within the visible church and has given spiritual gifts to teachers and elders for the very purpose of edifying the saints and protecting them from harm. Romans 12, 4 to 8, Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, 1 Timothy 1, 3, Acts 20, 28 to 32. The ministry of pastors and elders continues throughout history after the death of the apostles for the very same purpose. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, 2 Timothy 4, 2, Titus 8, 5 to 9. Oh, that can't be 8. That's got to be something else. Maybe it's three. If individual Christians must submit themselves to a biblical decision of a local church court, as required by Hebrews 13.7, then they should obviously respect and submit to biblical church councils and synods who have provided solid, biblical, expertly crafted doctrinal statements that deal with heresies, serious errors, and heterodox practices. To refuse to stand on their shoulders is to purposely place oneself in a position of immaturity and vulnerability. The Reformers taught sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. This disrespect for historic creeds and disdain for systematic theology has rendered most of modern evangelicalism impotent, weak, and easily taken in by fads and syncretism. Instead of centers of doctrinal integrity and cultural dominion, many churches are obsessed with entertainment, humanistic programs, and relevance through syncretism which is simply compromised with the world. For example, modern worship in the church growth movement, where you go to a church and you get to see a good rock band, and you get to see some skits, and it's all super entertaining. Then the guy comes out and he shoots his mouth off for 20 minutes with a bunch of cute stories, and you don't learn anything about the Bible. That's a lot of modern evangelicalism. It's, it's completely a waste of time. Number three. One must also avoid the disrespectful and hypocritical use of creeds by most modern Reformed denominations that hold a loose subscriptionism. That is a subscriptionism with crossed fingers, which allows all sorts of exceptions and deviations to the original standards. Under such a system, the standards are mere suggestions or general recommendations. They're really that rather than subordinate authorities. There are a few reasons why loose subscription is so popular among Reformed churches in our day. The first is loose subscriptionism is necessary to allow for the declension, corruptions, and human traditions that have spread in various Reformed communions over the last 200 years. 
They can't be strict because they've already backslidden a great deal. Their worship is corrupt. There's a number of compromises in doctrine. They can't, if, if, if they repent, they're going to have to, if they go back to strict subscriptionism, they're going to have to start disciplining going back to what is biblical, and they don't want to do that. Loose subscription is both a symptom and a cause of declension. The regulative principle, which is perhaps the greatest achievement of the Reformed branch of the Reformation, is essentially dead in most Reformed circles. There is no distinguishable difference between the worship of most Reformed and Presbyterian churches today than Arminian evangelical churches. There's no difference. Now, they might use the Trinity Hymnal, which has some better hymns in it than the typical Arminian hymnal, but the Trinity Hymnal has hymns by Roman Catholics, by Unitarians, by all sorts of heretics and feminists. It's full of garbage. We're supposed to use the Psalms. <clears throat> Deviant views of early chapters of Genesis, feminism, and even denials of justification by faith alone have been tolerated in the name of love, acceptance, and unity. Second, scriptscriptionism would result in much smaller but much more faithful churches and communions. Americans associate, with, associate success with numbers, bigness, and popularity. God prefers covenant faithfulness, testimony-bearing, and corporate sanctification. If a Reformed communion can find something in their subordinate standards that they think is wrong, they should be open and honest and place the footnote in their editions proving and explaining the biblical reasons for a disagreement. That's the honest thing to do. If you don't believe in it anymore, don't say you subscribe to it. This occurred with the American changes to the Westminster Standard in 1788. The only problem with the changes made was that every single one of them was unbiblical and wrong. Every one of them was wrong. And you can read about that in my book on uh, National Covenanting. I have a whole chapter on that. Sola Scriptura teaches us that human traditions and unbiblical decisions of church bodies must not influence our interpretation of Scripture. Every doctrine and practice must be derived from a careful exegesis of Scripture. But Sola Scriptura does not teach us to ignore the lawful biblical findings of church councils and synods. As we study the Word of God, we must stand on the shoulders of faithful church bodies that live before us. We must maintain the attainment or testimony of our spiritual forefathers. With our eyes squarely upon the Bible, we must also take into account the wisdom, spiritual and doctrinal progress and theological victories that occurred before us. We are part of an organic body that has achieved progressive growth and doctrinal sanctification over time. To ignore that obvious fact would be foolish and detrimental. So I hope I was clear enough on that. I read an article by somebody, you know, Sola Scriptura versus Solo Scriptura, and he wasn't very clear, and he made it sound like the church was an independent authority of Scripture. It's not. But when the church does something right, like those first six ecumenical councils or the Westminster Standards, we must respect what they've done right because it's biblical. And I hope that's helpful. Well, I have to deal with the positive aspect of the sword of the Spirit, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Your Bible is amazing. Inspired, infallible, totally authoritative. Give us a love of it, Lord. Cause us to read it. Cause us to study it and learn it and apply it to our lives faithfully. Cause us to be covenant keepers, not covenant breakers, Lord. Help us to love your word and to love your son, Jesus Christ, more and more every day. In Jesus' name.